everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, to some of you, that's like heaven. That's filled with dreams. You're like, is this heaven? I'm like, no, it's Iowa. But really, it's judges. That's where we're at. But it does sound good to us. There is, especially in, in, in my life, living and breathing in America, when people talk about the sense of freedom, I, I have that thought of like July 4th, fireworks, freedom, which then gets extrapolated to like freedom is the quality we're all after, and it is the virtue we go after to the most, so that that's what it means. Then it gets morphed into freely expressing myself. I can only be free, truly free, if I can express all my feelings, all my desires, live my true self. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Or that idea of if it works for you or is good for you, then good, do it. It doesn't really work for me. Doesn't, I don't think it's really that good, but it, yeah, if it works. But those those shirts I see in audiences bewilder me of like, do you, they'll adjust. And I'm like, how many of you guys can do that in this audience and who adjust? Like, I don't understand how this happens. If everyone's doing right in their own eyes, where does this go as a society? Where does this go as a people? And for us, we don't have to speculate. We really don't have to speculate about our country. We don't have to speculate about the world. We don't have to speculate about where we're going because history repeats itself and we've already been here. And that's why we're walking through the book of Judges because the book of Judges shows us what a culture looks like when everyone believes and thinks that they should do what's right in their own eyes, throwing off any sense of kingship because it says there is no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the hook, the chorus. The line you should be hearing repeatedly throughout this book. And what it is peppered with, what it's littered with, is examples of the destruction of that way of thinking and that way of living. So we don't really have to speculate about what's next in our country, in the West in general. Judges very frankly, in graphic detail, reveals the foolishness and the suffering of this kind of living. One person has called it trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. Now, at the time in human history when God's people daily face the choice between looking to God as king or joining everyone else around them. And it's mainly the story of how they failed in this task. It just gets darker and darker as judges go. The light gets dimmer and dimmer as we get into judges. It's the reverse, the anti-Acts. Acts starts smaller and grows bigger and wider and wider and wider. The reach keeps going to the globe. Judges starts wide and goes to despair, darkness, just ending really with this sense of hopelessness. There's no king. There's no clear set standard of how we interact with one another and treat one another. This is hopeless. This is devastating. So judges. Miss Natalie read first seven verses. We're going to look at all 20, not all. We're going to look at 20 verses in chapter 1. 
Will you look at it with me? Judges 1, verse 1. What, uh, what page number is that in the Pew Bible? 206. If you need a Pew Bible, there's one around you. Grab one underneath your chair at Pew. The chair, the basket Bible. Yeah, update, uh, update my nomenclature. There's one. If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible. You can have that Bible. It's a gift to you. But page 206, Judges 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua the Israelites, inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. So they ask. God responds. Judah says to the Lord, we will go trusting. We will go trusting you're with us. Is anybody with me? I'm wrong, right? If you're looking at this, is wrong. That's what I expect is going to happen. I expect reading this is that, hey, who's going to go for us, Lord? What should we do? Judah's going to go. And Judah says, yes. Isaiah 6 kind of saw, here, here we are, Lord. Send us. But Judah says in verse 3 to his brother Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let's fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. Now that sounds wise. But from God's point of view, it sounds faithless. If not faithless, it's half faith. It's half obedience. It's half trusting that God is going to do what he said. Judah, I give it to you. Go. And they say, hey, Simeon, you know, younger brother in your whole clan, come with us. Now, where are we at? We're in Judges. When we're in the Bible, it's really helpful to know where you're at so you don't get confused in that scene. You know, like uh, uh, if you're reading Harry Potter and you're in the fifth book, you know, in the Chamber of Secrets. I know that's the fifth book just to mess with some of you guys, you know. Like, we're real fans. Um, but if you just jump into like page 213 and start reading for 10 pages, you're going to be like, what? What? What world is this? Who are these people? Oh, this, this guy could just walk through walls? Like, that's a thing? Okay, all right. I didn't know where we're at. So for judges to know, it's helpful to know the context and the genre of this individual book, any book that you're in. So the Bible is 66 books, but it's one unified story told over thousands of years by various authors because it's inspired by God telling his one unified story of his love, creation, and redemption. That's what it is. So you're in Judges. Now, if you look forward from Judges, you're going to see King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And then captivity because of the Israelites' unfaithfulness. But if you're in Judges and you look back, you'll see Joshua and Moses. Now, Moses. Go back with me to Moses. Moses, God calls him to lead the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and into his presence, into the place that God had promised. In Exodus 6, God states, I will rescue you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Now that's a promise. That's to the Israelites, but that's all connected to his covenant. He's already made to Abraham pre-Moses. So if you go back to further back from Moses, you go to Genesis 12 and 15 and see, you see this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And what does he promise Abraham? This is very essential for the book of Judges. He promises you're going to have a people. 
from this barren marriage that you've had no kids forever and you're super old, you're going to have uh, so many from your people. It's going to outnumber the skies. You're going to have a people. And I'm going to give you a place and I'm going to be present with you. That's what he promises them. And so Exodus 6 comes in and just saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm here to act on that promise. I'm here to rescue you from slavery, take you to a land, be, give you that land. This is your land, my people. I'm your God. I'm with you, present. And then Joshua, and then here in Judges, this promised land is here. They're at the cusp. They're leaning into it. They're taking it over. The place that God promised to give them. Now, in Joshua, God outlines the area. If you think about Joshua, that's your, uh, um, your land surveyor. It's like, here's the boundaries. Here's the lines. This is what's going on. This is for you. This is for you. This is, this is the boundaries. This is where it stops. This is where it stops this way. This is where it stops. But it also lays out that they are to accomplish the mission by depending upon God. And this is crucial for judges because they are to depend on their not. They are not to depend on their own wisdom. They're not to de depend on their industrial uh, war complex. They're not to depend on their might, their wisdom, their numbers. They're to depend on the Lord. Like Their, their military is a, a Lord-led military. That he's the divine warrior. That, that's where their confidence is. That's where they're to depend on. Not like everyone else that looks at and, and, and takes account of like, uh, we've got, you know, four tanks. We've uh, got ten, okay. Uh, truce? Should we call it truce? I think we should truce, right? That's what we should do. Now, you don't depend on your abilities. You don't depend on your technology. You don't depend on the numbers. You're to depend on the Lord. He says in Joshua 1, 6, 9. Joshua 1, verse 6 says, Be strong. And courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction of my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So if they depend on and obey God, they will experience victory and rest. But they won't make this happen themselves. You, you and I can't expect success if we don't work hard while obeying God as we meditate on his word and as we meditate on his promises. So he calls them, he calls them, this is their land. He tells them, you're to depend on me. And then he also tells them, you're to be faithful to me. In Joshua 23, God outlines this. He says, in this, in this covenant marriage with me, you're, you're not to covenant with, you're not to intermarry with any of the nations or the gods of the nations or literally marry people of other faiths. Why? Well, similar to us as Christians, we're not to intertwine. We're not to marry uh, uh, non-Christians. Why? Well, look forward to King Solomon and see the man who was gifted with all the wisdom in the world 
fail because he intertwined with people of other faiths. And in that way, so often, he got pulled this way instead of pulling them this way. This is why God commands Israelites to drive out the Canaanites from the land. The Israelites are to be a faithful people to Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are to build a place, a home in this land where they're to serve God, where the presence of God is on display. So other nations can see and celebrate the beauty and power and love of this God. Now, the, the objection in our, our mind probably is, uh, why does God command to destroy the people of the land? This sounds very similar to ethnical cleansing we hear of in current day. But first, I just want you to see from what I said, this isn't about vengeance. This isn't about race. This isn't about a cool land that they like. This is about God's promise. He's promised them to this place. And he's going to take them to this place. God has chosen this people and this land for his people. And Psalm 115 tells us that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So, so the first, first uh, my first response to your objection is let's have some humility. Humility before God, that God does all that he pleases and he does what is good, right, and true. I have to trust that, even when it doesn't make sense to me, even when I can't logically get there. I'm, I'm working on it. I don't know. I don't, I don't really see it. But then there's also probably the objection that doesn't this go against the Ten Commandments? Right? Let's go back to Exodus 20. Do not steal. Do not murder. So how does God command here what he forbids anyone else to do? Why does God allow this exception here? Why can't this part of the Bible be used as a warrant for holy wars today. Well, in our, our study by study, in our study guide, our little booklet that we're going to give to you, not this week, but next week. You'll have it next week in your hands. Very similar to the booklet we gave in Ephesians. It, uh, it outlines, it kind of gets into detail about this issue from Tim Keller, but I, I just want to highlight three items to help us through this problem. Number one, the war was not carried out on the basis of race. The purpose of this mission was not to break down, uh, uh, to, to tear down the, the, the other races in the region. The goal was to tear down the altars of other gods. Do you hear me? To evict pagan worship. So this isn't about a particular race. This is about worship. Secondly, this war is not carried out on the base of imperialistic expansion. Within this special command, God doesn't allow the Israelites to plunder or enslave the people with whom they battle. They're to be defeated and driven out, period. Period. Half obedience doesn't do it. You see it in, in Joshua 7 when Achan is judged for keeping plunder from a Canaanite town. One guy. In all the tribe, his personal obedience mattered for everyone else. 
So let me just remind you, in, in, in the 50,000 commercials you've, you've watched this week that have told you that, that you are an individual, individual and everything's about you as an individual, and then believing the idea that your individual choices don't affect other people, it's a lie because we're communal as beings. We're created imaging God in persons. Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect community, creates us to be communal people. So you've got to understand that your actions, your personal obedience, your life with the Lord actually affects those around you. You're leading them somewhere. Back to the real issue. So it's not imperialistic expansion. It's not based on race. And it's also, it's carried out as God's judgment through direct revelation to Joshua in chapter 1 and in chapters 23 and then in here in Judges 1 God gives specific verbal revelation to the Israelites to evict the Canaanites so nothing less direct and unmistakable could be the basis for such action so to be very clear it would not be enough to say we've thought about it and prayed about it and talked about it and we think the Lord is leading us to break the 6th and 8th commandments Thief and murdering. No. Can't use that. Any justification. But again, why did God command such a thing? Well, a short answer in a very... I'm trying to, I'm trying to answer this $1,000 question in a two-cent moment. But, but one theologian has called this the intrusion ethic. Keller writes of it this way. And it's, it's going to be on the screen because it, it's a long one. God, of course, knows the end from the beginning. He alone has the right and the knowledge to see a person who will be condemned on judgment day when his son returns and to bring a judgment down on those people early. Thus, God, the judge of all, can determine to begin to mete out justice on them now rather than waiting for the last day. Therefore, the future judgment intrudes on the present. This is not totally unusual because the blessings of the gospel are also intrusions of future grace into the present. Therefore, this is not a mandate for believers in general to move coercively against unbelievers, nor any warrant for a holy war by one faith against another. The way we know the Lord's will is to read the Ten Commandments and the other directions of the Bible to us, not try to imitate everything described in all histories of the Bible. So if you can see by faith that this is God's plan to execute his promises. But if I'd come back just to the story at hand, what we have is they ask, God answers, and Judah picks up Simeon. Well, then what do they do? Verse 4. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. <laughs> Uh, fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I've done. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The headline here, I think, is thumbless and without big toes. So the Lord handed the land to Judah. 
They don't execute King Bezek. Adonai just means ruler of Bezek. That's why it's repetitive there. They catch the, the ruler instead of doing what God had commanded him. But then this king interprets it theologically. That should be a little bit surprising, right? But it really shouldn't be that surprising because in this culture, all cultures interpreted everything theologically. Think of Gladiator. Think of the movie Troy. The gods, the gods, the gods. The gods allow us. The gods right. We, we, we just say other things, right? Some people say other things. The universe, this, luck, cha uh, chance, fate. But in interpreting, he is interpreted correctly in the sense of that God has wired this world with reaping and sowing. If you reap violence, if you sow violence, you're going to reap violence. If you sow blessing, you're going to reap blessing. That's the normal rhythm of this world. Now, at first this looks normal. Not, uh, that's a weird word. Uh, no one thumbless and without big toes is normal. Uh, it's just like, um, that's also a terrible thing to say. Here we go. My grandfather <laughs> lost his big toe one time. Not because of a war, um, but because of the sugars. And so, <laughs> I kept going. This looks like an eye for an eye. It's not an eye for an eye. If you actually know the principle of eye for eye, an eye for an eye is not if someone takes your eye, eye out, you take their eye out. That, that's not the tone of that message at all. The tone of that message is if someone takes your eye out, you can take up to equal of what they took out. It is to repress, suppress, hold down vengeance that becomes a way of life when we go tit for tat, back and forth, uh, ante up, ante up. Oh, you stole my donkey. I'm going to take your Lamborghini. Like, no, it doesn't work, right? That's not equating in value. It's not equating. So what I'm saying is, the real irony here is not that he interprets it theologically, but the Israelites have quickly adopted the practices of the people around them. Do you see that? He said, this is what I used to do. I had 70 kings. I did this to them. I made them sit under my table and eat scraps from my table. And what do the Israelites do? They don't look to God on how to execute what he's called them to. They don't look to God on how to treat their captives. They look to the nations around them and say, how are we supposed to treat captives? Oh, we cut off their thumbs and we cut off their big toes. Yeah, that's what we do. They spared a man they were to execute and they looked at the peoples around them for guidance. So even the first, the leading tribe, Judah, makes compromises along the way and this serves as a premonition of things to come. Verse 8, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly named Kiriath Arba. They struck down Sheshai, Hiamen, and Taumai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly named Kiriath Sefer. Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, I will give my daughter 
Aksa to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. As she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you want her father? What do you want? She answered him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. I think the headline here is there's this heroic new husband, Othniel, and a forward-thinking, respectful, asking Aksa. Now, you read this, and maybe, again, you have problems with this proposition that maybe seems like uh, the dad is treating his daughter like an object. He's awarding his daughter as an object to this person. But the truth is, her dad wants a godly, valiant man for his daughter, a man like himself one who trusts God's promises and obey God's commands. He wants someone that says, God's called us to this. Yes, I'll do it. Let's go. That's what Caleb wants. And so you'd be like, well, I'm pushing back. Well, she pushes back on this, but she doesn't push back on that. She most likely felt honored to be given in marriage to a military hero like Othniel. This is good for her. But what she pushes back is asking respectfully for a blessing. Now, this isn't a dowry. This isn't something she's asking for a blessing, for a gift. This is her posturing her body. She gets off her donkey. She respectfully comes to her dad and asks for a blessing. Now, the interesting thing is we don't understand this, but in uh, uh, in the native language and in that native country, the, the, the original readers would understand what she says about Negev. The place that he gave her is actually not Negev land. It is a land that has, it's not in the Negev. That's what I'm trying to say. It has Negev-like properties or characteristics, meaning it's desert. So she's saying, uh, she's not saying you gave me the land in Negev. She's, gave, she's saying you gave me desert land for my family, for my future, for our cattle, for our thriving, for our success in this land, can you please give us water? Can you bless us with water so that we can thrive and have kids and grandkids and, 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 and do what you've called us to do? So with forward thinking for her family, she asked for water. Now, I think this author includes this little tiny snapshot in Judges 1 to show us even even as small as it is, this example of a faithful family in Israel. You see the respect and love between them. You see the, the father taking care of his daughter. You see the father looking as a strong leader that, that he's been here before. Back when him and Joshua were young lads, someone said, hey, who's going to go and spy and look in this land? Caleb's there. And Caleb's one that comes back with Joshua and gives two out of the 12 say, no way we can do this. No way we can take this land. Did you see their chariots? Did you see how big they are? We, we, we have like wrestling names for their, their anicums. They're annex. Like watch out for all the annex. They're giants. We can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb, the two of the 12, come back and say, 
The Lord is with us. Let's go. So that's what Caleb's looking for. So you see this little snapshot of this example of a faithful family. Father pursuing a noble husband for his daughter, a leader leading the charge for God's mission, a new man stepping up to follow the lead, a, a, a daughter who displays decorum and industriousness like of, like of a woman of Proverbs 31. It's a family with respect and love. How men treat women is a major theme in this book. Men who bless women. We've got one example right here. We're going to have many examples of men who abuse, use, take advantage of, treat as objects women. And so men... Just gently, I'll remind you to treasure and bless your wife. Treasure and bless your daughters. Respect the women in your life. Treat the women here as sisters with dignity and value. Because a little compromise, a little half obedience leads to looking like the pagans around us. We're in Joshua Judges, you hear me? And what do we start going towards? Well, if we're going to treat captives, if I'm thinking that way, like the neighbors around us, how do the neighbors around us treat women? Do you want me to give some stats? Do I have to at this point? by porn alone, what is the overwhelming view of women and the peoples around us? And women, this is in contrast to the life and practices of Delilah that we'll see later on in the book. Because here you got a woman who seizes blessing by forward thinking and working with respect. And then you have a woman who takes what she wants by manipulation and temptation. How do the women around us pursue what they desire? How do they get what they want? How do they talk about one another? How do they deal with conflict? So if you're with me, you should be knowing what God is after and judges is you, is after your full heart, is after full discipleship, is after full obedience. Not, not to become a person that's all demental and no fun, right? It's like, hey, we're fundamental, but we have no fun. Like, I, what is that? I don't understand that. Like, I play basketball, and, and a team that majors on the fundamentals isn't fun to watch. But if you play basketball, the Spurs, but if you play basketball, 
If you play basketball, it's only fun if you know the fundamentals. Because then you can do other stuff. If I can dribble with one hand and go to another one, then I can start going from one hand to underneath my leg. And then I can start going behind my back. And then I can start looking at Tim and pass it to Rick. And I'm just like, oh, look at this. That's not a fundamental, but I'm having fun now. So what I'm trying to say is this. I'm not advocating for us to have some communal space where we all stay and ward off from all the pagans. What I'm saying is, what I'm asking is, what I'm really getting us to wrestle with judges is, are you more discipled or are you being more discipled by God or the people around you? That's what I'm asking. Are you looking in those, those points of tension, those points uh, of frustration, and those points where you've never done something like this before, are you looking around to the people around you for their guidance on how they do this? Or are, you, are you looking to the Father? That's what I'm saying. Verse 16. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. They went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephath, and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah. If you'll see, if, you're, if your Bible has a little footnote, that means destruction. Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron and its territory. The Lord was with Judah. Hear this. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take position possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the plain. Why? Because those people had iron chariots. Verse 20, Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised. Then Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. The first headline is, they ask, God answers, and, and Judah takes Simeon. Then this, this headline is almost completed. Or that imagery of George Bush standing on the ship in the ocean, you know, with a mission accomplished behind him. Remember that? Never mind. <laughs> if this, what's saying here is mission almost accomplished, is what he would say. Almost. Almost done. Verse 19, the Lord was with. The Lord enabled them. But they could not drive out. This is like Peter walking outside the boat, looking at Jesus, walking on the water, but then, in a lack of faith, he looks down, freaks out, falls. They take their faith eyes off of God and begin to look at what is around them, look at what they're against. They start seeing the power of chariots and determine they don't have enough. The enemy's too strong. They don't trust God, so they don't finish the job. The enemy's technology is too advanced. But, but recall, what technology defeated Jericho? Yeah, the brass section of the band. That's what. Not iron chariots. Someone blowing breath through brass.
but here they're scared and fearful. And often scared and fearful people go with common sense rather than faith. And what does common sense say here? Iron chariots beat no chariots. That's what happens. So we're done. What also might be happening, they may also be kind of content as in satisfied. We did a lot of work. We achieved a lot. The, I mean, their stats, they, they took Jerusalem. That's going to be the king. That's going to be the, 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 the king's city in the future. They, took, they toppled the, the biggest ruler in the area. Maybe they're just satisfied with their achievements. But I want to take you back to that story of Joshua and Caleb when they went to go spy on the land and when they return. It's in chapter 17, verse 16. But the descendants, <clears throat> but the descendants of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who inhabit the valley area have iron chariots, both at Bethsheen with its surrounding villages and in the Jezreel Valley. So Joshua replied to Joseph's family. And, and if you're back in the story, you, you just imagine Caleb's right beside him. Not, not the mouthpiece, but just stand there because it's the two of them. They're the only one that's giving this report. You have many people and great strength. You will not just have one allotment because the hill country will be yours also. It is a forest. Clear it and its outlying areas will be yours. You can also drive out the Canaanites even though they have iron chariots and are strong. <sighs> Situations, circumstances, by common sense, are usually bigger than you can handle. But that's why he's here saying, again, for the 40th time, be strong and courageous. Do not fear and do not give half heart to this. Go full, finish the obedience, accomplish the mission. I am with you. And half obedience, I gotta stop calling that. Half obedience is just disobedience. Because if you know the story goes, the Canaanites are a problem for them for centuries to come. The ones they didn't drive out, the ones they just settled with and said it's okay, becomes thorns in their side for centuries. Half obedience is disobedience. God is coming after fullness, after your full heart, your affections, your thoughts, your actions. He wants it. I, I yesterday told one of my sons to, to take out the recycling. It's one of his things and one of his chores, and he took it out. And I also added some stuff to try to teach him, hey, you left some others. There's three blue bins out there to recycle. You've got a lot of pieces that you guys just threw on the ground. So also pick those up, okay? So I told him that. been very clear because I had a conversation with the other one, one of the other ones, the day before about it. So I do it. Well, then I go work on some sprinklers, come back around, look. And the white bin that is in, usually inside is right there by the blue bins. And there's still even some stuff in it. And I'm like, man, half obedience is disobedience. You know why? Because later while I'm making lunch and I've got, you know, 
all this recycling, it just starts lining up on my counter. Right, just lining up on my counter. I'm like, because I don't have a place now. Where's our place for this? I don't have a place, it's outside. Such a small story, but you can see, yeah, this, this doesn't work. Like, I'm really proud, he's the youngest. He got out there, but this isn't his first rodeo. He knows what to do. So when you see that fullness, what I'm trying to say is God is after your full discipleship. Halfway obedience here and in this book, like life, leads to no obedience. Half obedience leads to no obedience. To continue to be discipled by the people around you and not God is to go their path. Is to become like them. Is to pick up the practices and the habits of them. God wants to disciple you. He doesn't want the surrounding nations. He doesn't want the surrounding people. He doesn't want the surrounding culture to disciple you. I told you the theme, the hook of this, this book is there's no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's, that's not true for us. There is a king. And we have to do what's right in his eyes because that's what always leads to joy and thriving. If you want to talk about human flourishing, then we do what's best in the, in the eyes of the one who flourished us, meaning created us, set this together, made this happen. He sees what is right and calls you and me to do what is good and right and true. And he expects us to do it thoroughly. One of, the, one of the definitions that we use in our house about obedience is uh, obedience is doing what is expected of you cheerfully, thoroughly, and immediately. Cheerfully. Thoroughly. Immediately. That's what obedience is. That's what he expects. Half obedience is disobedience. And as the cycle goes of judges, it just gets darker and darker. The people keep turning away from the Lord, keep going after uh, the other nations, keep devolving into really an animalistic style of engaging with one another. Meaning they become less and less human. To be discipled by the peoples around us and not God is to become less and less human. Jesus isn't the judge that just forgives you your sin for all your half-obedience, disobedience, rebellion, and failure. He's also <laughs> He's also one that makes you righteous and new and clean and gives you eyes to see what is good and right and true lets you know that this isn't chaos that there is a king you get to the end where Samson is defeating his enemies by pushing 
out his arms in one last triumphant, miraculous work and kills all of the worshipers, the false worshipers around him. Samson's a failure. All these judges, at the end of the day, can't do what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus also spread his arms out, also defeated our enemies by dying like Samson, but not just as an act of retribution but as an act to deliver, to deliver us from our folly, from us trusting in our own thinking, from running after other gods, to being more discipled by the practices and habits of the peoples around us, rather than the one who's redeemed us. I'll leave you with this. Tim Keller writes, True discipleship is radical and risk-taking because true disciples rely on God to keep his promises to bless them and not on their own instincts, plans, or insurance policies. Father, would continue to turn our hearts to you. that the, the anti-repentance of judges wouldn't be our, our lifestyle, but the, the life of regular repentance and turning away from other habits and turning away from other practices and turning away from other ideologies and turning away from other lifestyles and to follow you and to enjoy you, Lord. Would you, would you come after our hearts? Would you lead us to depend on you? And give us the strength to be faithful, to continue in Christ's name. Amen.